Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions I think on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. Taking stock. Halfway into the year, most of us would hope for a second half as strong as the first. But is that what we have in store? This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, it really wasn't about the week. It was about the year, or at least the first half of the year. A first half that saw the S&P 500 up 15% and Treasury yields up around 50%, although still in a very modest 1.5 range. While the reflation trade drove oil up from $49 a barrel to $75 a barrel. So if that's what the first half of the year meant for investors, what does the second half have in store? With GDP expected to grow over 6% this year, while inflation looks likely to come in well above the 2% target of the Federal Reserve. To help us look ahead to that second half of the year, we welcome now Glenn Hubbard, Dean Emeritus of the Columbia Business School and former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President George W. Bush, and Sarah Bloom Raskin of Duke University. She earlier served as Deputy Treasury Secretary as well as Governor of the Federal Reserve Board. So welcome to both of you. Great to have you on Wall Street Week. Sarah, let me start with you, if I may. We got the the jobs numbers out. They were better than expected, 850,000 new jobs. At the same time, unemployment rate ticked up. Does it tell us much about where the economy is going in the second half of this year? Probably not, David. Um, While it was a good number, it wasn't a blockbuster number. And we're still seeing real unusual behavior um, by workers right now and decisions regarding whether or not to go back to work. Um, These decisions at some point were thought to be related to the fact that there was this $300 supplemental unemployment insurance 
piece that was tacked on to uh, benefits. Uh, it turns out that that rationale is probably not what's going on. Uh, people are thinking about other things. They're thinking about um, their health. They're thinking about the vaccination rates. They're thinking about childcare. So the decisions, which, you know, and of course they're thinking about wages and benefits to the jobs that they're going back to, but the decision-making I think is a little bit more complex than, um, than economists might have thought about before. So the number by itself, I would say is, a, you know, it's a good solid number. Uh, clearly there's more room to be, to, to go. Uh, the, the numbers of people back in the workforce are not uh, what you would expect them to be. There need to be many more coming in uh, and they're not there yet. So I would say um, more progress and, you know, let's not, let's not get fixated on this number alone. So, so Glenn, Sarah says it's complex. Such a nice word. It's complex. Uh, we spend a lot of time talking about the jobs numbers every month. And in part, it's because what we think it will mean for the Fed and what they'll do. At this point, if you're in the Fed, how do you interpret numbers like this? I mean, if you're looking at price stability, employment, what do you make of these it, numbers? It's a great question. I agree with Sarah. I think we learned something, but not a lot from the report. Uh, it was good. We have 850,000 new jobs. Wages were rising 3.6% year over year. But we have more job openings in the country than we have unemployed people. For the Fed, I think it means the following kind of arithmetic. We're down 6.7 million jobs from the pre-pandemic period. The Fed believes that about 2.5 million uh, Americans may have retired or were thinking about retiring as part of that. So that means that the present pace of job creation uh, in the spring of 2022 will be approaching full employment. And so the question for the Fed is, how do you think about that? Is that? Does that mean tapering early is a good idea? How much of this is just the change in the reopening patterns in the economy, uh, the unemployment benefits and so on? I think it's a tough time for the Fed, but I would prefer they spend a little more time thinking about what next spring could look like and what they may do to prepare. Well, well Sarah, next spring we have to be concerned about maybe full employment. There are other things as well. We also had the Case-Shiller housing price numbers come out this week, and they went up the most in 30 years. There are people talking about a bubble, certainly in fact a bubble, a, a real boom in house prices. Does the Fed have to be worried about things like that? Oh, yes. The Fed has to look at that. Um, and uh, the concerns about a housing bubble, I think, grew a little bit more with the numbers that came out. Uh, you'll, you'll also be hearing some um, uh, Federal Open Market Committee members talking about housing specifically because, of course, the, um, uh, the, the, the stability, the financial stability consequences of, um, of housing prices is really quite you know, can be quite concerning. So um, the Fed, of course, has regulatory tools that it can engage in, that it can use, that it can deploy um, in order to, uh, you know, to kind of take away some of this, you know, uh, froth in housing markets. Um, you know, the Fed sometimes talks about, wow, should we use monetary policy as, you know, the, the sort of the whole big, you know, set of tools on the monetary policy side we have to, you know, to take the oxygen out. But they are looking at this. You can be sure of it. So, so Glenn, you're uh, an economist. You're not a markets guy. But at the same time, it's interesting to me, the market's reaction this week. I mean, we're starting the, the second half of the year. And they basically, it's a melt up. It's a general move up. We're still at records or close to records. It's gradually moving up, not dramatically. Is this, we think, because they think the Fed will actually taper and tighten monetary policy appropriately to avoid inflation? Or because they think 
They won't. I'm not sure whether they're they're happier if the I, Fed doesn't do anything I think, or they think they're going to jump in. I think it depends on the market participant, David, but I think you're hitting on exactly the right issue. You know, to, to Sarah's point, an obvious thing the Fed could do is stop buying MBS every month. You know, that that's an obvious thing to do before you get to regulatory and and margin and lending uh, changes. Sarah Bloom, Raskin, and Glenn Hubbard will be staying with us as we turn our attention to the all-important question of financial stability and whether there are still some holes in the system even after all the reforms made a little over a decade ago now. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Let us not forget one fundamental issue which lies at the heart of our problems. Over a period of years, persistent and growing global imbalances fueled a dramatic increase in capital flows, low interest rates, excessive risk-taking, and a global search for return. These excesses cannot be attributed to any single nation. That, of course, was Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson speaking at a news conference during the great financial crisis all the way back in 2008. We're in a very different world today, but it's striking that we have once again enormous capital flows, low interest rates, what some say is excessive risk-taking, and a global search for return. The Brookings Institution assembled a task force to look at financial stability, and it issues its report this week. We are fortunate to have with us the co-chair of that task force. He is Glenn Hubbard of the Columbia Business School, together with Sarah Bloom Raskin, who's looked at the these issues, both as a Federal Reserve governor and as a deputy treasury secretary. So, first of all, congratulations on the report. Glenn, you got it out. Tell us what's different and what's the same, what you found from your report. Well, it was funny seeing that clip of Hank, because it really could have been done, uh, could have been done today. I think what happened in the global financial crisis is we focused on banks. And we actually did a pretty reasonable job in dealing with banks. And the way I think about it is, if you're thinking about fire, putting out a fire or fire prevention, One tool is just to put out fires after they're raging. That's the way regulators typically do it. That's what Hank was talking about. But another is to prevent the buildup of combustible materials in the first place. If I'm not torturing it, that's like policy. And another is to smell smoke, and that's process. And what we tried to do in the report was say, what are the key externalities, the spillovers, if you will, from one sector to the other in the economy? What kind of policies need to change in non-bank finance? And what is causing the regulatory process to miss things. Why did the Treasury market break down last March? What could we have done to make that better? We talked about housing. 
uh, earlier. What could we be doing there? Is FSOC working? Those are the kind of questions we were doing on a, quote, clear day uh, <laughs> to see if we could make it better. So, Sarah, one of the things that strikes me about this is I don't know the policy. I don't know the regulation the way you and Glenn know it. At the same time, I've heard for some time now about issues with non-bank issues, not the banks. As Glenn says, they're regulated at this point. They've got a lot of reserves. And also short-term uh, uh, funding issues. I've heard about this quite a bit, and yet it keeps coming up, including, as Glenn says, uh, just a little over a year ago now. Why don't we fix yeah. it? Right. So, um, you know, one of the virtues of the work that Glenn and his group did is to highlight uh, once again uh, some of the issues that are going on really outside the contours of banking as we understand banking. Now, the, 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 the rules and structures around the banking system are much more developed than they are in the, than in the non-bank space. And as Glenn points out, you know, you can take all kinds of actions within the contours of the banking world, and there will be effects outside. And it is those outside effects that this report and this group are once again highlighting. And the question is, why are they once again highlighting this? And why were these issues not addressed fully earlier? And, uh, you know, so, so after the financial crisis, um, there was indeed quite a bit of attention put on the financial sector, but mostly the regulated part of the financial sector. What are called wholesale funding markets, the so-called plumbing behind a lot of the non-banking activity that, uh, you know, that, that, that Glenn and this report discuss, those issues are far less along in being addressed. And yet they have to be because they are the source of important parts of uh, important components of financial stability. And really to go much further without addressing these underlying risks is actually quite perilous. And one of the things that I, that I think is important in this discussion is that we have to understand that, there, that, these are the, that this is the pipe. Right? right? And you've got to keep your pipes clean. Right. You cannot clog them up. Well, and when you clog them up, you actually create all kinds of problems. Well, and and so, and yeah. The good news here, Glenn, is for those who haven't gotten a chance to look at the report, you have a roadmap. I mean, you lay out a series of issues and, and including a series of recommendations about what can be done about it. Give us an example or two of things that should be done. And by the way, who would do them? Because I'm not sure about who the regulatory authority who would do it. Sure. Well, let, let's start with the Treasury market, because that was a real life stress test that we all failed in March of 2020. There's no market more fundamental to finance in the United States and around the world. The Fed had to buy one and a half trillion dollars in treasuries, more than it bought during the entire financial crisis in a short period of time. What had happened was the size of the treasury market had grown enormously from government debt issuance, but the capacity of private dealers to intermediate hadn't kept pace. Part of that was regulation, part of it, other things in the economy. That was foreseeable. We could make steps to make those dealers more able, you know, modifying regulation a bit, having to do with liquidity ratios. We could also create a standing Fed facility where it's really clear you don't have to dump treasuries. Uh, another issue is um, money market funds and open-end bond funds that had grown very large. To the extent in a crisis those funds try to dump their treasuries first, we may need to think about that. A lot of the financial sector in the non-bank world was creating liquidity or the illusion of liquidity. And the question is, is that liquidity really there? 
To do these things, do you need legislation, or is there existing regulatory authority to accomplish some of that? It depends. Some of the things we recommend, particularly about process, existing regulatory authority can do. Uh, Secretary Yellen, in her capacity as the chair of FSOC, could make some of those changes. But some things we recommend, like giving each agency a financial stability mandate, that you'd have to go to Congress to do. Some of the housing things we talk about, you'd have to go to Congress to do. So, Sarah, you've spent a fair amount of time in Washington, uh, both in the executive branch and at the Fed. If it's this straightforward uh, and it's this important, why doesn't it get done? I think part of the reason it doesn't get done is because a lot of things in Washington are, are not done with a precautionary approach. They're done after the crisis has hit. And, um, you know, examples of, of, uh, of lawmaking, I think, are, are filled with this idea that, you know, we kind of wait till disaster strikes and then we come in and clean up. Um, that actually is an approach that turns out to be quite costly. Um, it turns out to be an approach that, um, you know, I think uh, is, is quite suboptimal. Um, one of the very interesting kinds of risks facing financial stability right now, of course, is the, you know, risks posed by, by weather and climate. We really want to thank Sarah Bloom Raskin of Duke and Glenn Hubbard of the Columbia Business School for a terrific discussion about financial stability. Coming up, the deals market is red hot, but is it still being held back by uncertainty about where the Biden administration is headed on things like taxes and antitrust review? We talk with former lawmaker and current deal maker Eric Cantor of Molis & Company. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Taxes are on the global agenda. This week, 130 countries endorsed a global tax minimum of 15%, setting the stage for G20 finance ministers to sign off on an agreement in principle next week. Here's Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. The G7 has taken significant steps this weekend to end the existing harmful dynamic, making commitments today that provide tremendous momentum towards achieving a robust global minimum tax at a rate of at least 15 percent. In the United States, President Biden has made tax policy one of the centerpieces of his administration's agenda. Where President Trump cut taxes, President Biden wants to raise them on the wealthiest corporation and individuals, all to help pay for his economic programs. I think the president's basic point is that why shouldn't capital be taxed as much as work is taxed? And um, I'd love to have someone tell me why it shouldn't be. That's Steve Ratner of Willett Advisors. It's not just about raising tax rates. President Biden also plans to do away with some tax breaks that benefit Wall Street. The private equity industry is hoping to hold on to some version of its carried interest tax break, as President Biden wants to raise the tax on what private equity managers earn from the 20% rate in effect now to something as high as 39.6%. The tech sector is also on the receiving end of President Biden's tax plans. Silicon Valley's biggest stars could get hit by a change in capital gains tax rates and a potential retroactive application of the new rules. I don't think it's going to reduce the amount of venture capital next year or the amount of venture capital investing or anyone else. That's Graycroft's Alan Patrikoff. The Biden administration is also taking an aggressive approach to antitrust. Newly appointed FTC Chair Lina Khan plans to take on big tech, claiming they abuse their market power. 
And Amazon is worried enough that it's calling for Khan's recusal from actions involving it because of her prior criticism of the e-commerce giant. Here's Wall Street Week special contributor Larry Summers. And the idea that big is bad per se, or the idea that big should be broken up just so that smaller companies have a better chance uh, to compete even when they are less efficient. That is the way to American failure. Even the prospect of big changes in taxation or in antitrust regulation can have a real effect on when and if big deals get done. So who better to ask about this than somebody who went from being one of the most senior lawmakers in Washington to being one of our most senior dealmakers on Wall Street. Eric Cantor served as representative from the Commonwealth of Virginia, rising to the level of majority leader of the House. And now he is a vice chairman of Mollison Company. So, Eric, welcome back to Bloomberg. Good to have you here. Give us a sense as you actually are talking to people about doing deals. Are people holding off at this point because of uncertainty about where the Biden administration is going with both taxation and antitrust? I would say, you know, we have to sort of take a step back and realize that we are continuing to see just tremendous momentum in U.S. M&A. And this comes off of record-breaking quarters for Q1 and certainly Q4 of last year. Uh, and uh, with that, you know, tremendous amount of tailwinds uh, in general, obviously with the government intervention because of the pandemic, the pent-up demand and the excitement around the reopening, the vaccine rollouts, um, you know, you couple that together with the um, access to capital, the low cost of capital, and mix it in with the valuations that sellers can realize right now, right now there is a strong appetite to transact, no question about it. And the, the ability uh, to transact across sectors, across regions is, is certainly pronounced. When it comes to taxation and possible changes to taxation, again, we don't know what those would be, but we've seen various proposals made. Is it causing some people to move things up, to do them more quickly? We saw Steve Schwartzman last week over in Qatar saying that he thinks actually there's an avalanche of opportunities because people want to get ahead of the tax men, as it were, in case there are tax rises. Well, I mean, as you know, the sort of uh, uh, narrative of this administration and the majorities uh, in the House and the Democratic control of the Senate um, the, the narrative is increased taxes on the private sector. And so there's a lot of concern about where that will end up. As you suggest, there is uncertainty about what, uh, what really the traffic will bear here in Washington about how, how much increase uh, we'll see in tax rates. But yes, for the most part, I think uh, people who are transacting uh, in the markets today are anticipating um, a likelihood of a tax increase, whether it be a corporate rate increase uh, whether it be a cap gains rate increase or on the individual side for the smaller businesses who may still operate as pass-through entities, which, as you know, there are a lot of those in America, um, that anticipation that perhaps we may see a return to the pre-17 days before the Trump tax cuts um, um, in the individual rate as well. So all that together, I think, does create, again, some incentive for people to want to transact to get their deals closed this year um, in, in thought that perhaps there would be an effective date of January 1, 2022 on any increased tax rate. Eric, thank you so very much. That's Eric Cantor. He's vice chairman of Mollison Company. Coming up, we wrap up the week with special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. 
While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We now turn to our special contributor, Larry Summers, to wrap up the overall week for us. So, Larry, at the very end of the week on Friday, we got the jobs numbers a little bit better in some respects than what was expected. What do you make of them? I don't think they were a big story. The employment number was better than I better than people uh, expected. The unemployment number was worse than people expected. I think what stood out for me was that labor force participation did not increase. And with 25 states phasing out unemployment, unemployment insurance, with everything that was happening, this long-awaited return of those out of the labor force is materializing more slowly than I think many people expected. And that's a little bit ominous for the future of uh, wage inflation. The headline figure, three-tenths of a percent growth in wage inflation, doesn't seem so bad. But given that the workers who are coming back are disproportionately low-wage workers, and that holds the number down, I think that's a bit more concern for inflation. Uh, so that wasn't the big event some people thought it might be. Talk about the CBO report. The Congressional Budget Office came out with a report that talked about something like a $3 trillion deficit we're going to be running, although it comes down to all the way down to $1.2 trillion in the out years. What do you make of the CBO report on the economy? Look, I think it's saying something that is the conventional wisdom that might be right, but I don't think we can count on it being right. You know, that CBO report assumes no passage of the Biden plan. It assumes no extensions of a range of uh, tax cuts. It includes not much in the way of emergencies. So it's probably a substantial underestimate of where the deficit is going to turn out uh, to be. And it's saying that we're going to be a country basically for a decade where the real interest rate's going to be negative, where the budget deficit's going to be close to 5% of GDP, and where the debt ratio's going to be above 100%. And that that's all going to be sustainable. It might turn out to be right, but for it to turn out to be right, it's going to require that there be a very substantial excess of saving over investment, or it's going to require that we be borrowing very substantially uh, from abroad. In many ways, it's a bet on, ironic for me to say this, it's a bet on secular stagnation. After all, the whole idea about secular stagnation was that even when interest rates came down, 
savings were going to be substantially an excessive investment. And if you think that you're not going to have an overheating economy with negative real interest rates and with those pretty large budget deficits, uh, that's a that's a bet that there's going to be some fundamental weakness on the part of the consumer or the investor or some very heavy borrowing uh, from abroad. So I'm surprised to see that as the mainline normal uh, normal case. And I kind of think something's going to have to give. So, so Lauren, just pick up on one thing that you just said there, negative real rates going out into the future indefinitely. Doesn't that have to be wrong? Or if it's right, doesn't that tell us that something's gone terribly wrong with the economy? That can't be healthy. Well, I think what it's telling you is that there's a lot of desire, a lot of uncertainty. People are going to live uh, a long time that you've got very substantial desires to save and limited desires for resources for investment. I think it is substantially concerning, David, if it turns out to be uh, right. But remember that some of it is being driven by what's basically a very positive thing, which is that capital goods are getting cheaper. My $600 phone can do more computation than a $25 million supercomputer could in the 1990s. That's progress. That's something that's good, but it does have this consequence that we have this excess of saving, and that's something uh, we have to manage. Now, this forecast is assuming that that excess of saving is really big because we got room for all of these deficits without all this debt without pushing up uh, interest rates. If that's right, then we're doing the right thing and it will all work out. That was the secular stagnation view. It's just this is kind of secular stagnation on steroids, given how low the real interest rates are going to be in the forecast and how big the deficits are going to be. Okay, Larry, let's wrap it up, as we always do with a rapid round of Summer Says. Let's start first with somebody you knew, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, served twice as Secretary of Defense. And, And I think although he was controversial sometimes, some people might even suggest you sometimes have been controversial. I think everybody agrees he was very intelligent. Uh, and he also was devoted to his country. What did you know of Donald Rumsfeld? He was always um, a good friend uh, to me. We didn't know each other well. Obviously, on questions like the Iraq War, we had some major disagreements. But I learned from him. His observations about unknown unknowns are, I think, something anybody in a leadership position has to pay a lot of attention to. And... uh, One of the shrewdest bits of management advice I've ever received was his famous statement that A's hire A's and B's hire C's. And I think every manager in America should keep that in in mind as they make hiring decisions for organizations for which they have responsibility. That really is terribly good advice. I agree with that. Second subject here is Facebook. Facebook uh, uh, won in its uh, motion to dismiss against the FTC. They had to pull back the case. They may file again. How significant was this development? I think it said something very important for the antitrust debate. Whatever you think, and the people who are very worried and others who are less alarmed about 
the big tech companies, if one wanted to mount a major uh, attack on what they're doing, we probably need not just more aggressive enforcers, but changes in the antitrust law. And that's a basic reality that everybody needs to consider, whatever their opinion on what's desirable is. It's something that investors, as they handicap the antitrust possibilities, uh, need to recognize as well. And finally, third subject, uh, housing prices. They came out this week, and the Case-Shiller was up the most. It's been up in 30 years. We got something of a housing boom, boom if not a buzzle. Bubble, what do you make of that? I think this is scary. Uh, I think rising house prices, in most people's common sense of the word, represent inflation. Whatever exactly is showing up in some price index. My guess is that the increases we've seen are going to find their way into the price indices over the next year, even if we don't see further increases. My guess is we are going to see further increases in house prices given continuing shortages. And my guess and my judgment is that if that doesn't get reflected in the indices, it tells you something about the indices, not about the economy. And that this is surely a major indicator of substantial inflation psychology and needs to be taken very, very seriously. I cannot understand why the Federal Reserve, in the face of this, continues to be every month a major buyer of mortgage-backed securities. That is the ultimate in pro-cyclical behavior. Okay, Larry, thank you so much. That's our special contributor at Wall Street Week. He's Larry Summers of Harvard. Finally, one more thought. Working nine to five, but from where? Now that we can finally go back to Manhattan dinner parties again, there's always one subject that inevitably comes up. And no, I don't mean Donald Trump. No, it's the question of getting people back into the office. 16 months ago, most of us didn't have a choice. We had to stay home no matter what. But now it's no longer a must-do, it's turning into a can-do, or even a wanna-do. And surprise, surprise, some of us find that what we once found a pain is now more of a perk. But not everyone agrees. Employees, when they're surveyed, are split almost evenly among always, sometimes, and never on when they want to work from home. And bosses are divided as well. Some of the big banks, for example, don't see any reason why employees shouldn't get back into the office, especially when they seem perfectly capable of doing other things in large social settings. And even some big tech companies like Apple say you need to get back into the office, that working from home just doesn't do the trick. And then there's the other end of the spectrum, where companies are actively competing for employees, telling them that they never have to come back into the office again, even characterizing remote work as a sort of signing bonus, according to the Wall Street Journal. But in the middle is the so-called hybrid. Companies like UBS that this week announced it would let two-thirds of its employees mix working from home and from the office. And city CEO Jane Fraser this week acknowledged that there's something of a fight going on over where employers end up along this spectrum. 
the future of work at City, we'll, we'll see nearly all of us back in the office. But there's a big but with that. And that's with increased flexibility. We're looking at a much more flexible approach going forward. Um, and uh, I think it will be a, a competitive advantage for us. But we really don't need any survey to tell us two things. First, pretty much no one, and I mean no one, given the option, really wants to be in the office on a Friday. And second, you know for sure that all those small businesses around our office buildings, the coffee vendors and small restaurants and sandwich shops, they need us all to get back to work in the office. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.